The Echo Chamber, brought to you by The Homes Report and produced by the international broadcast specialist Marketeers 4DC. Welcome to The Echo Chamber PR podcast. This is Arun Sudhaman, editor of The Homes Report, bringing you our first Echo Chamber of 2015, produced as always by Marketeers 4DC. We've got three interesting interviews for you today. We're joined first by Jim Joseph from Conan Wolf to talk about the Super Bowl marketing trends. Amber Roussel will be joining us from M Booth to discuss the White House's digital strategy. And then Rich Fogg from CC Group will explain exactly what international marketers don't understand about U.S. media differences. First up, though, is Jim Joseph from Conan Wolf. Jim, welcome. Ah, thank you. Great to be here. Uh, and we're here to talk about what is, I think, probably the biggest marketing event of the year, certainly in the U.S., the Super Bowl. Uh, it was an exciting game, but it's also a, a huge marketing and advertising opportunity. Absolutely. It is the marketer's holiday of the year, there's no doubt. And it's the one time all year we can honestly say that our activity, whether it's our advertising or social media or in-store displays, our activity takes center stage. And in fact, in some cases, overshadows the actual pop culture event. So it's our day to shine. Yeah, it's interesting because I saw a lot of people in my feed. I mean, we're not really that focused on the game. They were much more interested in watching the ads. Oh, absolutely. In fact, I hold a Twitter party for these big pop culture events, and that's all we talk about is the advertising. So during the game, we were actually tweeting about the ads, and then we'd go quiet while the ads were running, and then we'd start tweeting again. Mm. <laughs> it was the, the fun part of the night for sure. And w w did the ads bring it this year? Was it, w Were they exciting enough to keep you from watching the game? You know, there's always a lot of critique and a lot of commentary about um, maybe it was better than last year or not as good as last year. For me, every year is a good year, and it, it all depends on why you're advertising. If you're in the Super Bowl because you're trying to change perceptions or entertain or become a part of people's lives or just raise awareness, then it's great advertising. And we saw a lot of great examples from, from Budweiser and Coca-Cola and McDonald's, um, like a girl from always, you know, brands looking to change perceptions, raise awareness, become a part of people's lives. And for that reason, I think it was an amazing year. Aside from the brands you mentioned, who do you think were the winners and losers this year? It's funny because the winner for me was a bit of a surprise and it was Microsoft. You know, we're used to seeing splash and, and, you know, fireworks from brands like Apple and Samsung. And usually a brand like Microsoft is pretty quiet. But I actually found them to be the winner of the night because they had two executions of their empowering campaign that really showcased how their technology empowers people either to overcome their own special needs in one case or to help someone help others. And it was such a great example of storytelling that was tied to actually what the brand does, that was tied to what the brand equity is all about. And then, you know, no small coincidence, they had Microsoft devices on the field during the game that was actually helping the, the teams play their game. So to me, Microsoft, as a bit of a surprise, was the big winner of the night. Interesting. And who do you think didn't do so well? I saw a lot of criticism of Nationwide. Uh, nationwide got a lot of flack <laughs> mm. and during my Twitter party, literally the minute that it aired. And that was one of the ads actually that I personally didn't preview. And I don't know that it was even available for preview. So it kind of came out of the blue. It was a bit of a surprise. And a lot of people thought it was just morbid. 
And I think it's an example of wrong place, wrong time. I mean, the Super Bowl is a party occasion. It's a family occasion. And no one wants to be sort of put in a position where they have to think about something awful happening to their family. So it was unfortunately a, a total bust um, in terms of how viewers responded to it. Mm. A lot of spend again this year. Uh, do you feel it was worth it? I mean, that's the perennial question. I'm not sure that just that one 30 second spot for four and a half million dollars or when you're buying a 60 second spot, you know, upwards of nine million dollars. I'm not sure that that in and of itself is worth it. Uh, unless you're like the NFL and you have a PSA on domestic violence that's really changing people's perceptions, that was probably worth it. But in and of itself, I'm not so sure. But that's why you saw so many brands do so much activity before the game and then so much activity after the game in order to make their investment worth it. And I think a great example of that is actually the McDonald's Lovin' campaign. They were teasing it and previewing it up to the game. They ran the spot during the game. A lot of people loved it. And then all throughout the rest of the game and then on for the next couple of weeks until Valentine's Day, they were um, having little promotions. In fact, every time another brand advertised, like, for example, BMW, McDonald's would offer a promotion through social media where you could win a BMW as part of their love and campaign. I mean, that's getting the value out of your investment. So, yeah, you're probably spending more than just that little spot because you've got to do all that other activity, but it's making your money last a lot longer and actually probably driving sales as mm. a result. And as you mentioned, you're seeing a lot of um, digital activity, uh, a lot of social media war rooms, lots of brands trying to tap into the, the real-time buzz around the event. Are they doing that well? I think they're doing it exceedingly well. And I think that's how they're really getting consumers and, and viewers to engage. It's impossible to engage with a spot that you're watching on television. You might engage with each other, you might comment on, on, its, on social media, but you're not really engaging with the brand. But through that social media activity right in the moment, you actually get to engage with the brand. In fact, again, McDonald's, perfect example. You know, they were responding to almost every single tweet. I mean, probably not everyone, but it appeared that way. So as people were putting in a retweet in order to enter the contest, they were responding back. Papa John's, for example, not an advertiser in the actual game, but an official sponsor. They were asking people to upload videos of like a happy dance every time somebody scored. That's a way to engage with the brand. I, I think they're doing an amazing job. It's not just Oreo anymore that's good at it or um, a pizza brand or a car brand. It's, it's lots of different brands across lots of different categories getting very good at it. Mm, and how hard is it to get very good at it? I mean, you hear about these war rooms where they have, you know, creatives, they have editorial specialists, designers, they have people from Twitter and Facebook in there. I mean, how big of an operation is it or how much planning is required to be spontaneously funny? <laughs> it's a lot of work. In fact, uh, we call it planned spontaneity. So mm -hmm. you want to look like you were in the moment and you want to look like you um, were just sort of reacting. But the truth is you have to think ahead of time about what you're going to say. In some cases and in some categories, you have to get legal approval for what you're going to say. You know, humor can go awry really quickly. So you have to be really careful about what you say and that it doesn't get misinterpreted and shared the wrong way. Um, so it takes a lot of work to be clever in the moment, and it takes teams of people that include, you know, creative writers and project managers and legal consultants. I mean, it takes a village in order to be able to respond in the moment. 
which is why people are now gathering in war rooms so that they can look at each other face to face in the moment and respond and make decisions because it comes with a fair amount of risk. If you say something wrong, offend people, people take things the wrong way. Mm-hmm. And, and also a number of brands that just decide to sit out Super Bowl. Why? Why do they do that? I, I think a lot of it's because I'm not sure we've ever really proven that a spot in the Super Bowl will return on the investment. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure we've ever proven the ROI. Hmm. And for a brand to spend you know, up, upwards of $9 million for a 60-second spot, that's an entire media plan for some folks. So again, unless you're looking to change a perception, merely drive awareness, or really become a part of the fabric of people's lives, there are other ways to engage with people that might be more effective for your category and for your brand. It's kind of a playing field for the big guys in, in a lot of ways, mm. I, I think. So you don't necessarily think a Super Bowl spot is worth it? Depends on what you do with it. If you really make your investment work and you do a lot of work before, during, and after, and if what you're trying to accomplish makes sense to be in that kind of an entertainment venue, because it's an entertainment venue, which is, I think, the mistake that Nationwide made is they Mm. forgot that it was an entertainment venue. Unless you can play the right way, I would say spend your money elsewhere. Mm. How much longevity does the Super Bowl marketing event have? I mean, do people just forget what they've seen and and, and everything that's happened after a day, after two days? I mean, that, that also must factor into the amount of money people are spending. Oh, absolutely. And I think if all you do is look at it as an advertising venue, mm. it is gone in the blink of an eye and in it, it is forgotten. Mm. You might get a little commentary, you know, on Monday or Tuesday after the, the Sunday night game. But if it's just advertising, it, it's gone. I think that's where the power of public relations and the power of social media and communications kicks into gear, where you keep the momentum alive with continued engagement and promotions you get influencers to participate so people notice that and they share it. I mean, that's where the role of the comms people really do kick in to make that mm-hmm. advertising get amplified and, and live on for two, three, four weeks, maybe until the next big event like the Grammys or the Academy Awards where perhaps you get a chance to reinvigorate it with more advertising. Mm. Um, and presumably all of that means that there's now much more of a role for public relations people when it comes to the Super Bowl if it's not just an advertising event and we're seeing a lot more in terms of real-time engagement and all of the things that PR people are, are doing these days. That is absolutely true and the, the really good marketers understand that and they involve the PR and the comms people in the planning right from the very beginning. It's not just playing field for the advertising folks and for the copywriters and art directors anymore. It, like we were saying, it takes a village in order to really pull it off. Mm-hmm. And we've seen even where we're getting involved very early in the planning um, to make sure that we drive the kind of engagement levels that are going to deliver the results. And then beyond that, were there uh, any other interesting trends that you saw come out of this year's Super Bowl marketing? It's funny because um, I had predicted it ahead of time. Mm-hmm. Um, no surprise, there were a lot of signs, so it's not like I was psychic by any means, but it was the year of the dad for sure oh, and okay. especially right in the beginning the first quarter it seemed like brand after brand was celebrating dad and we've seen this happening for a while so like i said the signs were all there but you know if you go back you know five six seven years ago it was very common for marketers to portray the dad as 
a very disengaged, sort of bumbly, fumbly, little bit of an idiot, the, you know, the butt of people's jokes in, in the household. Mm. And as our households have changed, as men have become much more active caregivers, in some cases the primary caregiver, in many cases doing the shopping, the cooking, the taking care of the kids, we're seeing marketers reflect that in their advertising and in their um, social media and, and all their engagement activities. Mm, that's interesting. And we saw it in the Super Bowl, full tilt. Mm-hmm. You know, Dove, Toyota, Nissan, um, really promoting dad as the caregiver in the family. That's interesting. And uh, I mean, that, it suggests that there are, I guess, broader demographic changes that, in, in play. Do you see dads, for example, making more of the purchasing decisions? Because it's always, I think, been thought that the female in the family is the person behind the purse strings. Yeah, that's absolutely happening. There's a lot of data that shows that. And a lot of folks are pinning it on two factors. One is the millennial generation and just their outlooks on life and family life, and they're starting to have children. But also the huge recession about probably seven, eight years ago really hit men a lot harder than it hit women. Mm. And more men lost their jobs, and it took men in general longer to find another job. And in fact, they didn't always rebound to the same level that they were at before they lost their job. Mm-hmm. So it forced a lot of men to become more active in the household because they were home and their wives were out working. So they suddenly did more shopping, did more caregiving, carting the kids around. We're seeing a lot more stay-at-home dads. We're seeing a lot more same-sex couples, obviously. So um, yeah, there's huge societal trend. And the marketers are uh, reflecting that. Okay, interesting stuff. Jim, thank you so much for joining us today. Oh, a lot of fun. Thank you. Welcome to the Echo Chamber podcast. We are joined today by Richard Fogg, Managing Director of UK Public Relations Agency, CC Group. Richard, welcome to the Echo Chamber. Thank you very much. And we're here to discuss this potentially inflammatory uh, (laughs) study that you've released, where as far as I can tell, you have tried to to just stereotype all of the journalists (laughs) in the USA. Yeah, well, there's only a few of them, so I thought it was safe. (laughs) So tell us a little bit about this study where, from the way it's described, you're trying to help international marketers, presumably those outside the USA, understand that the US is not a homogenous media market. Yeah, I guess it sort of comes back to conversations that I'm sure you've been exposed to um, in the past in Europe and Asia and basically outside of the US. And it's almost a running joke in international PR circles that sort of, you know, a fair few US marketers tend to think of Europe as a single homogenous entity, never mind the dozens of different languages, political systems, cultural variations and things like that. Now, of course, that's a dramatic overstatement, but it still does exist. And, uh, you know, it was just before Christmas at a PR networking event in London that I heard mention of such sort of a view. And it was at that event as well that I kind of asked the question on the people assembled, well, okay, well, how does PR practice change between US regions? Does it change between US regions? And, you know, it's all very well to sit here and say, uh, you know, a couple of US marketers don't really understand Europe. But at the same time, I don't think many European public relations professionals will really understand how the practice of PR and influence relations in particular will differ from a um, state to state basis. That's kind of interesting, I think, that the fact that European marketers or all marketers outside the U.S. see the U.S. as a single homogenous market. Why do you think that belief persists? 
couple of reasons. Number one is, I guess, the US is often referred to, and um, US citizens tend to refer to the US as a melting pot. So you get the idea that there aren't that many clear regional differences. And in talking to a fair few agencies at the Homes Report Global Summit back in October in uh, Miami, actually, I came across some people who felt that they're was this general sense that it was a reasonably homogenous market. But as soon as you spoke to somebody who, I don't know, was from Minneapolis or something like that, they'd very quickly give you some intelligence or some insight into how PR is actually a little bit different there. So I think that's kind of where it came from, is there is this sort of view of this US cultural imperialistic um, nature Um, depending on your political view. But there's also this sort of enduring sense of a melting pot and a coming together of cultures that suggests a more homogenous nature, um, which hasn't really um, come across in the the findings. And presumably this is a problem for international marketers. I mean, what are the risks of them believing that the US is too homogenous and not taking into account regional differences? I think you've sort of got this reverse cultural imperialism, let's call it, um, this sort of approach where marketers are trying to convince or convey a message um, across, you know, what is effectively an enormous country, but without taking into account some very important regional idiosyncrasies and frankly needs. Um, I think one of the things that really came through was that If you're dealing with what you might perceive as a national or international story, it's really only in the major cities that that kind of story is going to receive a fair hearing. Um, As soon as you move outside of your major internationally um, renowned cities, the requirement for a much more local angle um, is very, very clear. Now, that's something that might appear obvious to people listening to this podcast. We're all communications professionals. We all probably studied polycentricity at university or or something similar um, and understand how a message um, really needs to be transcreated for different audiences to ensure that resonance. So, yeah, I do think that there is a sort of problem going both ways that, you know, marketers risk not understanding the sort of regional differences and idiosyncrasies and that sort of interrupting and affecting how their message is received. So let's look at this map that you've come up with, which is pretty interesting. And what I liked, I think, most is that for the West South Central region, which I think includes Texas, they are most interested in the weather. If you're a technology marketer, I guess... I mean, just forget it. Is that, is that, is that the message here? <laughs> it gives you a particularly interesting uh, opener from a small talk perspective. I mean, frankly, as, you, as you'll know, Arun being based in London, um, English people should get on brilliantly well in the small talk stakes with people from West South Central. Mm. Um, you know, love a bit of weather to talk about. Most cynical, I guess, no surprises there. You, found, you actually found New England uh, journalists and influencers were more cynical than those... <laughs> In the Middle Atlantic, which um, I suppose I found, might I be a badge of pride. Well, I, I found that quite surprising. I didn't didn't quite realise you know, some of the challenges that um, PR agencies have to go through in the sort of you know Boston and wider Boston area. I'm talking to the guys at uh, at March Communications. You know, it, I love the fact that they describe a lot of the or the typical personality traits of local journalists as cynical, bordering on cranky. Uh, you know, basically cynical of any interaction with PRs, with pitches, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera, but at the same 
same time, you know, very regionalistic and sort of not quite got a chip on their shoulder. But, you know, this is an area of uh, the US that is you know, renowned for its amazing um, startup community and technology, um, just not quite as renowned as the West Coast. Um, and there seems to be this sort of, you know, real drive by the local media there to kind of re-establish with every article New England on, on that map. Uh, it's worth noting, I think, that you didn't just come up with this study yourself. You actually put it together with nine firms in the, in the US. We did, yes. Right? Um, so people we've worked with in the past, people that we've been sort of in contact with um, through networks and things like that, people I met at the um, Homes Report Summit. You know, it was really quite interesting. You, you suddenly realize that you've never worked with an agency in Tennessee, um, as an example. And you have to sort of work pretty hard to identify someone who might be able to help you. And then sort of, you know, it is quite an unusual thing for a you know, London-based PR agency to try and put this together. But you know, the more I talked about it with people, both this side of the pond and um, in the US, the more it became clear that there really wasn't any kind of resource that existed. So journalists in the South Atlantic are the most laid back. <laughs> Apparently so, yes. What does that mean? Well, I think there's a sort of, uh, this also links to this idea of moving on, quote unquote, southern time. Um, and that's uh, some insight from um, our partners over at Interprose. And I think it's just this sort of quite interesting, if it's worth doing, it's worth doing properly kind of approach. But one thing that really came across was they really dislike typically this idea of rushness and rudeness. And apparently, um, just listening to uh, to Vivian, the CEO over there, you, know, you can really do some damage to media relationships, both your own and you know that, that, that with a company um, by being too pushy and too hard. So if you kind of go in there with a, I don't know, a, a New York mindset, quick, hard pitching um, mindset, then you're likely to come up short because you'll offend someone and that's going to impact your relationship for, for a very long time. Mm, okay. And you can, of course, read more about this study on the Homes Report website where we have a nice map that you've produced. Do you have any <laughs> plans to do this for Europe? I suspect it might be a much larger map and take it, you a much longer time possibly. Actually, I've worked with an awful lot more um, companies, uh, PR agencies across Europe, so it mm. technically could be easier to put together. But I, I think as well, there are resources that already exist to sort of you know compare and contrast some of the European market idiosyncrasies, they're not quite in that format and probably not quite as consumable. But you know they're out there. But I think let's see how this one goes first. If I'm suddenly deluged in uh, hate mail from uh, New England journalists, well, that's the hope. I might think twice about this. That's why we're doing this. <laughs> it's like holding me up as a target for all. Well, I think it's really difficult. You know, if someone were to say to me, you know, what's your average UK journalist like or your typical UK journalist then there's a fairly wide range so really? it's only going to be sort of another layer down of generalization but frankly it's an awful lot better than what exists at the moment so yeah I'm sure we might upset some people but hopefully we might make some people laugh and um, in the in the meantime people might learn something about the importance of using sort of local support local knowledge and um, really mixing that up with PR campaigns that are intended to reach you know the, the mass market in the US. Excellent, Rich. Thank you so much. Not at all. Thanks. I'm joined on the line now by Amber Roussel, who is Vice President of Digital at M Booth. Amber is going to talk to us about her role 
as a digital influencer for the White House's recent State of the Union speech. Amber, welcome to the Echo Chamber podcast. Thank you so much. So tell us a little bit about your role helping President Obama build digital engagement for his recent State of the Union speech. This year's State of the Union, as many of you may notice, was more interactive and and real-time than ever. And part of the White House's aggressive social strategy that was implemented for the event was to invite guests to participate um, both online and influencers to participate in person from the social media command center that they had set up at the White House. And I was one of those guests. Um, The invitation came from the Office of Digital Strategy. They had actually posted on their social media channels inviting people to apply to participate. And so I did. I, I thought it was, you know, something interesting that I hadn't really done before. I, I've been involved in a couple of political or, or activism events uh, with social media in the past and, and thought this would be something really interesting, especially because this year's speech, you know, as, as we saw leading up to it, was going to touch on the Internet quite a bit and several topics that would um, be related to our field and digital marketing. So... You know, part of this invitation, uh, there were about a hundred um, people from various different backgrounds, a few like myself from agencies, but many who um, were either politicos and just had personal um, social media followings or personal blogs. And, you know, we were there in the White House in this sort of command center, uh, much like you would see. You know, CNN would set up a live set um, to cover an event. So there was a live feed and a camera crew. We all had Wi-Fi and all of our devices uh, were allowed, which was really nice that the (laughs) the Secret Mm -hmm. Service checked us in and let us bring, you know, cameras and laptops and uh, all of our phones and devices. But the room where it was set up, the live feed of the president was there um, where he was giving his speech. And we also had access to different types of shareable digital content. Um, So there were videos and GIFs and infographics that the team had created, as well as stats um, that they were encouraging us to tweet out. So, you know, being there in the room, they were really looking to us to sort of help, you know, lead that conversation and illustrate key points in the speech and be sharing those throughout the event. So it was pretty cool to see it in person. I mean, you you read about um, some of these command centers that happen for events such as the Super Bowl or big brand events and a little different at the White House. Um, I imagine it was a bit more intimate, but um, definitely a variety of, of people there in the room. Mm. And what's the thinking here, do you think? Why do you think they actually did this this year? Part of what they're trying to do is to reach younger generations, you know, particularly millennials who are potentially at the beginning of their careers or right out of college and, and so important to, you know, our, our future economy and, and our, our future landscape of what will happen on the Internet um, moving forward. But, you know, these younger generations haven't really been involved necessarily in events like this in the past. You know, you, they might read about them after or watch a few minutes. But, you know, I think there were several things that I noticed that, you know, this year being a year of firsts with digital innovation at the forefront that, you know, I wanted to call out. So, you know, one thing that I'm sure all of you noticed that was Instagram. was It was the first time the word Instagram was ever spoken in a State of the Union address. You know, the president was speaking about the space program and I love 
you know, actually following several of the astronauts on Twitter myself. But, you know, it was really cool when he, you know, gave that nod to potentially being able to post an Instagram from space. These nods, such as Instagram, make us remember that increasing significance of digital and social and communication. Mm -hmm. um, so it's no longer just um, about you know, reporting news. It's about capturing real-time moments. You know, and millennials being that first generation to have access to the Internet, you know, when they grew up are, are thinking about this all the time. It's inherent to them. So mm. a couple of other firsts were the fact that the full text of the speech was available to the public online in advance um, mm -hmm. via Medium. I, I don't know um, if you guys have been following Medium. Mm, yeah. But, you know, it's a really cool platform where you can actually see a variety of information posted and learn and share. And the White House had actually joined the platform several months ago, so I had been following it some from the start. But Dan Pfeiffer, who's actually a senior advisor to the president, who was one of our hosts for the evening, mentioned in the Q&A afterwards, because several of us had questions about, you know, what we had seen during the speech, and we were able to ask those questions afterwards to Dan. And, you know, he mentioned that what he really wanted to do by publishing it was, one, reach a wider audience and through a more personal lens. But they wanted to close that gap between this veil of, you know, traditional media who have this control over the message. And, you know, he said it had become this thing where every year the speech was in so many people's hands before it was ever spoken. <laughs> and so the hundreds and hundreds of people, the media, all of the people that were a part of um, developing it at the White House, oftentimes pieces of it were leaked. He said, why not just put it in the hands of the public, too, so there can be an open dialogue and they can follow along and they can help shape that conversation on their own. Mm -hmm. So I thought that was huge this year and look okay. forward to seeing, you know, next year that visibility and transparency that, you know, we saw this year, you know, just from that one piece alone you know, how much more of that might be done in the future. Sure. I mean, it sounds like they are also loosening control. I mean, I, I assume that all of the people that were there, you guys weren't expected to be on message in any way, were you? No, absolutely not. I mean, they gave us very little requirements or, or restrictions as to what we could do. Um, there were some people, as you were following the SOTU social hashtag throughout the night, that were very opinionated, some positive and some negative. And so, you know, they were completely open to allowing us to, you know, share the messages that we wanted to. Absolutely. Mm, okay. And how well do you think the initiative fared? Do you think it was a success? And, and are there any particular statistics that you have to, to kind of bear that out? I don't have specific statistics of whether it was a success or not, you know, in regards to it being interactive. But it was a moment in time where we saw the president, you know, in, in a human, candid way. You know, he, he was trying to appeal to his audience from... You know, that level of transparency, again, like I mentioned, you know, I really appreciate it. And, and whether you support this president or, you know, voted for him or not, there definitely was a change in the behavior, you know. And even from that transparency and, and candid 
element. I mean, it just, that also mirrors what we see on social. So for brands, for example, you know, Mm. when you are transparent and human versus, you know, speaking like an ad, it goes over much better. I mean, I know from working with my clients that when we do A-B testing and we, you know, personalize our content, it always performs better. Um, And consumers nowadays are more savvy than ever about this level of authenticity. They can recognize, you know, a branded piece of content um, versus something that's real time. You know, I think one example during the Super Bowl that just happened also since the State of the Union is, you know, Totino's accidentally or not posted all of their real time Super Bowl tweets a day in advance. And... These, you know, some people say maybe it wasn't an accident. Maybe they knew they would get PR out of this. But, mm-hmm. you know, consumers basically releases the veil that's, that shows, okay, well, they were trying to be clever and real-time and comedic, but all of these were posted having never seen the game. They were written in advance. <laughs> um, so, of course, the president's speech is going to be written in advance. But the fact that, you know, we can then have uh, be participating in it um, and being a part of it, I think makes a big difference. It's interesting you brought up companies and brands because we're all very familiar with their digital activity and many of them, of course, are at the forefront of digital marketing. Do you feel that the White House's digital strategy is good enough? Do you, do you think it's improved? How would you characterize it? I think it's improved. You know, I will say it's obvious they, you know, are placing more of an importance on it and also allocating more resources towards digital. You know, they seem to be expanding their team. The Office of Digital Strategy alone, I know, has expanded a lot this past year. And, you know, I I recently read an article as well, you know, about how they were actually looking to create dedicated teams for different offices, um, Mm. you know, within the government. So, you know, those are huge steps. Um, So I don't think it's being ignored. And, you know, I will say I love the members of the team I met. They were not all people that had had a huge amount of experience with politics. You know, some were recent graduates um, that were assisting the event day and had been in the office and, and you know, we're employed, we're not interns, but we're working as assistants to develop copy and some of these assets. So it was exciting to see that there are actually, you know, this same demographic that's going to be speaking to um, the audience are the ones that kind of have um, a little bit of a say um, behind the scenes as well. So I also thought it was cool that his team developed um, a set of spoilers that they released sort of from the road. So leading up to the event, they posted some of these on Medium and a few other places. So they were actually doing teasers for what was going to happen um, mm-hmm. in the speech beforehand. So that was interesting as well. That was a first. And also knowing that, you know, our digital culture, we have such a short attention span and, and we expect to get, you know, information immediately. And, you know, so having a little bit, those nuggets of information that's being shared over time kind of captures your attention leading up to the event. Mm. Okay. Well, Amber, thank you so much for your time today. No problem. Thank you so much for having me. 
that's all from us for this episode. We'd like to thank you, as always, for listening. You can get in touch with us um, on our Twitter handle, at Homes Report, at our Facebook Homes Report page. On our website, you can even call us up, should you choose to do so. I would like to thank Marketeers for DC, our broadcast partner, for helping us deliver the show. We will be back in a couple of weeks' time. Thanks for listening to the Echo Chamber podcast, brought to you by The Homes Report and produced by Marketeers 4DC, the international broadcast specialist. For all the latest information, you can follow us on Twitter using at Homes Report. Check out our Facebook page or simply explore the website at homesreport.com.